One of the best ways to support the FTF podcast is to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, interviews, and plenty more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast, where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today we are talking about, you know, one of the top echelons in gaming. You know, they've, they've hit the top charts on Metacritic. It was a game that kind of wasn't supposed to be, went through plenty of iterations, and finally took us uh, deep below the sea. The path of of development for this game is so interesting to me. I am really excited to talk about this one today. I was working at GameStop when this game came out and everyone wanted this game. This game was huge. People that I worked with were talking about it constantly. Mm-hmm. I mean, this game really kind of just blew open first-person shooters as a genre. We had established IPs that I think were doing really well, and this mm-hmm. one came in and just sort of broke the mold. Well, it did. It, it really applied those RPG roguelike elements into a game that we had seen somewhat of tried in prior instances, but not as successful as melding this, plus with a kind of crazy sci-fi story. Absolutely, man. And I remember you playing this one a lot. I remember watching you play this one a lot. I know that you were a big fan of this game. So I have to imagine that you're excited about this episode a little bit. Yeah. Well, baby, let's get it started, Derek. (laughs) Okay. About this game, you could turn everything into a weapon. Biologically mod your body with plasmids, hack devices and systems, upgrade your weapons and craft new ammo variants, and experiment with different battle techniques. After your plane crashes into icy, uncharted waters, you discover a rusted bathysphere and descend into Rapture, a city hidden beneath the sea. Constructed as an idealistic society for a hand-picked group of scientists, artists, and industrialists, the idealism is no more. Now the city is littered with corpses, Wildly powerful guardians roam the corridors as little girls loot the dead, and genetically mutated citizens ambush you at every turn. Bioshock forces you to question the lengths to which you will go and how much of your humanity you will sacrifice to save your own life. Mm -hmm. Bioshock was released on August 21st, 2007 in North America, with Europe and Australia receiving the game one week later. Yeah, so Bioshock is definitely one of those games that hit, has such a cool dystopian 1950s, you know, period piece to it that worked. So we'll break it down, what it took to create this game, who worked on it, and uh, how we're seeing it today. Irrational Games was co-founded by Ken Levine, Jonathan Shea, 
and Robert Fermier in 1997, after the three met while working at Looking Glass Studios. Irrational released their first game in collaboration with Looking Glass, the role-playing survival horror game, System Shock 2, a follow-up to Looking Glass's System Shock in 1999, to a significant amount of positive feedback. Following the release of their role-playing game Freedom Force and first-person shooter SWAT 4, the studio would open an extension of Irrational in Canberra, Australia, named Irrational Games Australia. Simple enough. Following this expansion, the development of a third-person shooter survival game called The Lost would start between the two locations. However, due to legal issues with the game's publisher Crave Entertainment, the project would be indefinitely halted in 2002. With The Lost being canceled, both Irrational locations once again worked together to create Tribes of Vengeance, a first-person science fiction shooter game which would go on to win the award for Best Game and Best PC Game of 2004. In 2005, the main headquarters of Irrational Games relocated to a larger office space in Quincy, Massachusetts. Less than a year after moving, Irrational would be acquired by Take-Two Interactive under the publishing of 2K Games in 2006. During this time, early production into Bioshock had already started between both Irrational locations. Early 2007 would see both locations renamed 2K Australia. They had to keep it. You know where it is, obviously. It's down under. It's down under. And 2K Boston, which is to the right. <laughs> I like <laughs> how you Boston. said Boston with an Australian accent, just that I know you're trying to do a Boston accent. It's no, no, so no, no, bad. No, 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 to the right. No, 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 no. no. It's all Australian <laughs> with Bioshock releasing later in the year. Listen, <laughs> it's Australian studio and then East Australian studio. <laughs> oh, man. Despite having moderate success, the System Shock franchise was ultimately deemed a commercial failure by EA in 2001. Afterwards, Irrational's creative director Ken Levine pitched the idea for a System Shock 2 sequel not long after the idea was shot down, Levine started the groundwork for System Shock's spiritual successor while still continuing his work on other titles for Irrational. Yeah, it just seemed like Levine just didn't care. He's like, listen, EA, listen, 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 buddies, buddies, guys, friends, pals. <laughs> babies, babies. Babies. I know, I know you're saying it's a, su- it's a success. Oh, oh, you mean failure? Oh, no, no. You're saying it's a success. So here comes System Shock. Three, maybe? And like, no, dude, what are, you, what are you doing? We do not want this. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, yeah, it's a failure. Well, how about the next one? It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Pretty much. I had to do a double take a little bit when I read that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, them's the facts. During mm-hmm. early conceptualization, Levine was not concerned with the game's story, thinking other components of a game were more crucial for its success. This was ironic considering he worked as a screenwriter prior to being involved in the video game industry. After some pushback, Levine was convinced by his colleagues to change his mind and focus on the game's story first. Levine's initial idea involved a utopian space station that had since turned into a nightmarish hell plagued with genetically mutated jellymen and eelmen. (laughs) Levine stated in a developer's log, you know, I wish I could say I had my ducks in a row earlier than I do, but I don't. People were coming. I needed a story to tell them, and I came up with that. The first internally funded demo of the game with this space station story was created for the original Xbox in 2002 using the Unreal 2 engine. Hashtag release the Jellyman Eelman cut. (laughs) 
<laughs> I need that in my life. I'm sort of just imagining the flood from Halo, but like the little like pod guys, the it's those a are the jelly of men. That and the jelly arm guys from Gotcha Force. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so during this time, Arashel struggled with trying to dial down on a specific art style due to some disconnect between the art and design teams. The team working on the game was already very small, so they all needed to work together seamlessly. To help bridge the gap between the two groups, Levine traveled with his wife to Times Square and took photographs of the buildings and architecture in the city. Ultimately, all their ideas would fall flat, leading to much of the game's art and story being scrapped by the start of 2003. Levine's next idea for the game's direction involved a man being hired by a U.S. senator to wipe the mind of his target on a cult island, which Levine described as, quote, a terrifying nexus between religious fantasticism and unbound science. So, yeah, he's getting pretty deep with some of these. And to be honest, it's not that far off from ultimately what Bioshock became. Yeah, it's, it starts off, you know, in, in that fantasticism, you know, and the, the idea of it, of the kind of this, not necessarily even religious fervor, but kind of cult fervor, drug fervor. But yes, it's, it's starting to get the building blocks rolling. Lead animator Sean Robertson described the monsters in this version as similar to Scooby-Doo, something that would be tough to pull off in a real-world setting. Levine suggested the game take place in a closed-off area from the rest of the world, so that they did not have to deal with circumstances that could not fit well within a realistic setting, you know, i.e. bottom of the ocean. By securing a spot closed away from the rest of society, more liberties could be taken by the development team. However, inner conflict would once again lead to most of the game being thrown away. If it weren't for Jack and the rest of those little girls. <laughs> We've gotten away with it. <laughs> the third version of the game was probably going to be the team's last chance, with it taking place within an underwater cult in a post-World War II Nazi base. This setting would very much resemble Rapture with its decrepit and rotting buildings and atmosphere. The main character would have been experimented on and transformed, pulling different elements from the sea and growing a crustacean's shell over his body. Still, despite releasing several demos and even showcasing a 212-page design document to publishers, no one was interested in the game. Irrational finally had to put the game on the back burner and work on something else. Throughout the studio's development of SWAT 4 between 2004 and 2005, several teams still worked on the would-be Bioshock game on the side. Only after the release of SWAT 4 on April 5th, 2005, would Irrational once again come back to Bioshock to work on the project. At this point, the game had officially been titled, but Levine was not thrilled with the idea of working on Bioshock full-time with a larger team. The rest of the developer's enthusiasm, however, convinced him otherwise. Because Irrational wanted to work on the game full-time, they had to use money made from previous games to fund what they could. If Bioshock was a flop, the company would be losing a lot of money and possibly shutting their doors. So yeah, this, this is coming down to the make or break it. You know, SWAT 4 had come out, and I believe SWAT 4 did as good as the SWAT games did. You know, as kind of like an off-brand shooter. In a way, that sounds bad, but it is kind of what it is. Sure. <laughs> None of so us were is... really growing up ecstatic about the SWAT 4 SWAT series. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't, wasn't waiting for my four-letter games. <laughs> so the studio was able to look 
that they were not able to accomplish with System Shock 2 storytelling and SWAT's shooting mechanics and improve upon them in Bioshock. A key point Levine wanted to emphasize to the development team was that he was sick of the shooters on the market. As a huge FPS fan himself, Levine wanted to see something different fall into the hands of players that had not been seen before. This would lead to one final large-scale scrapping of the game and the incorporation of the underwater hidden utopia setting with a lot of inspiration coming from real-world sources. Andrew Ryan's ethics and fear of the post-World War II U.S. and Russia finding the city of Rapture was based on the early life of Ayn Rand, a Russian-American author and philosopher who believed in rational and ethical egoism or kind of, you know, dealing within oneself and one's kind of look and view upon the world internally, externally. Uh, basically, just acting in your own self-interest. Mm-hmm. When it came to the storyline, a rational look to the first-person survival horror game condemned criminal origins, shout-out, sidebar, and FBS <laughs> Half-Life 2, sidebar 2, double shout-out, for ideas. Levine did not want the story to be overwhelming, leading to the suggestion of leaving a majority of the story for the player to find through the audio diaries. This way, the story could still hold a sense of discovery, as well as an air of mystery. Ooh. Despite looking into the horror genre and an all-time classic in Half-Life 2, Irrational's heaviest influence would come from the Capcom 2005 release, Resident Evil 4, a third-person survival horror game. Irrational loved that RE4 gave the player an interactive environment that they could implement against enemy combatants. This would lead to the Irrational's developers incorporating many environmental features, such as water and oil on the ground, which the player could use during enemy encounters to electrocute or engulf them in flames. This became such a large part of the game that an entire team was assembled just for player environment interaction. Resident Evil 4 also gave irrational ideas on how to switch up enemy encounters as well as what types of enemies the player would be fighting. During early playtests, most players ignored the first time they saw Big Daddy, which was battling a splicer in the background of a cutscene. And so to fix this, Lead level designer Bill Gardner suggested using more lighting and sound placements and cues, similar to that of RE4. This would in turn help the player focus their attention on what was most important during a cutscene. This was one of the most interesting parts of the development process to me because they had looked to so many first-person shooter games. They had been, mm -hmm. de been developing first-person shooter games. And now one of the most significant parts of the gameplay actually comes from a third-person shooter. And having those environments, having that be a point of emphasis for them, I think, was such a great idea. Yeah, maybe they stole it a little bit, but to take that and implement it in Bioshock obviously had a huge impact on the gameplay. And it worked. I mean, you know, we're seeing even in games today, all those biohazards around, you know, water for like electric sparks, oil to be lit on fire, or just any of those other things that have incorporated from these early OTS games it worked really well. Now, I will say the best game, and maybe I will include this in the episode, maybe I won't, but the best first interactive environment, Rampage World Tour. Hey, fall into that right acid, there. you transform into the purple flying gargoyle. I mean, more games need that, if you ask me. But yeah, basically, Big Daddy's based off of purple flying gargoyle, in my <laughs> opinion. 
In 2006, after two years of development, Irrational would officially announce Bioshock to the public. Despite knowledge in the gaming industry that this was the long-awaited spiritual successor to the System Shock franchise, Irrational was still having trouble finding funding for the game. As a marketing ploy, Irrational publicly stated that no one wanted to fund it. Levine's personal development log stated, We sold a story to the press essentially that we were having trouble selling the game to a publisher. That story got so much traffic that the next day, Bioshock was the best idea in the world for everybody. Not long after, Irrational would take a buyout offer from 2K Studios. This would prompt Irrational to merge with Take-Two Interactive, where the Bioshock team would grow to nearly 60 members. By this time, most of the assets from previous plot ideas had been taken out, and the development team needed to start creating final characters, story arcs, weapons, and more. As the budget increased, so did the pressure inside the studio to deliver something that would change the first-person shooter genre. I mean, this is now they're finally getting that ball rolling. You know, after all those years of scrapping ideas, trying to figure out even what they were doing, you know, now they're like, ooh, okay, the big dogs are here. We got what we want. Now we actually have to start fleshing this out and, and really just building it. And it's good, too, that he finally decided, hey, I need to let some more people in because without mm-hmm. all these extra development people, who knows if Bioshock ever actually gets made. Yeah, or, or if it takes another three, four years and, and it kind of falls by the wayside again. You know, we, it's, it's good that it went the way that it did and it still continues. But unfortunately, things changed by the end of January 2007 and there was not a lot of hope left for Bioshock. Most developers believed the game was going to be successful, but playtests, they proved otherwise. Testers consistently left negative feedback. They felt it was too dark. They did not trust that friendly companion Atlas, and one player did not even know the game took place underwater. I don't know that that's really on uh, the Bioshock developers. I think that might just be a bad tester. <laughs> but Yeah. Uh, but again, you don't know when they started, so it might have started a plane that's crash. True. It might have been that's under, true. and they just thought there was a lot of fish tanks around, and it was very wet. Could have been. Could have Could have been. <laughs> So, the head of Bioshock's focus group would even approach the development team at one point and tell them, you're screwed. Like, I I don't know what to do. But, with the game near completion, developers had to double down on their efforts to change the lighting, add quest arrows, and create more underwater cinema to the opening cutscene. To further improve the game, a team was assembled, consisting of one designer, animator, modeler, programmer, effects specialist and audio designer this group would meet and examine one weapon found within the game each day every team member would work on how to improve said weapon and would review the progress during the following day's meeting this would eventually lead to small teams being formed for other aspects of the game as well which in my opinion i think out of everything we've talked about so far in this development cycle this is what saved it. This is the thing that makes the most sense to me, just being really efficient, sitting down, having a clear goal in mind, small focus groups, and taking that mentality and applying it to the other aspects of the game, and especially like utilizing the amount of staff that came on after the 2K mm-hmm. acquisition. Perfect use of their time, 
And I 100% agree with you. I, I have to believe that that's what saved this game. I mean, yeah, if, if you think of it as like bringing all your generals in the room, you know, from every bit of every different force and being like, all right, is, is this doing good here? Is this doing good here? How's the Navy? How's the Army? So if think of it that way, you know, each one has their specialty. And instead of just having, you know, the game's designer being like, yeah, the sound sounds good. The lighting's okay. It, it goes pew pew. We're, we're good with that. You know, everyone <laughs> had their assigned role. And the efficiency and, and the, the, the need for it made so much sense. And I would love to see that. I mean, honestly, in my, I wish I had enough people in my daily life to plan my life like that. <laughs> Alex, here's what you did wrong yesterday. Well, here's the thing, too, right? So in your business as a photographer, you know, sometimes because you notice things as a photographer that maybe a lay person doesn't notice, you could get someone who has a specialty in another area to look at your photos and say, hey, mm-hmm. I get what you're saying, but to me, this thing is standing out. And so to be able to have people that are knowledgeable in the gaming industry, but also have different specializations, only good things can come from that. Yep. Uh, very, very similar process and a lot of engineering. Toyota does stuff like that. It's called Kaizen. Really, really efficient way of creating products. Yeah. And, and so they followed it and we're seeing the results. Bioshock was originally scheduled for release during the summer of 2007, but 2K would announce to the studio that they had three additional months to work on the game. The studio was both relieved and frustrated by the news. Bioshock had already been in development for many years, and the studio was ready to move on. Levine would state that while there were many technical bugs found in the game, there were more narrative bugs overall. He claimed that Bioshock had more narrative changes than any other published game during its final stages, and that they spent several weeks writing 40,000 words of new dialogue. Several months before the release of the game, 2K would place a demo on Xbox Live. Many players noticed that their download for the game was moving at a snail's pace, so Irrational would contact Microsoft about the problem. Although never confirmed, it's thought that because so many people were downloading the demo at the same time that they were actually crashing the Xbox Live servers. On August 20th, 2007, just one day before Bioshock's release, a PC demo was made available to the public. The development team easily designed a custom interface for the PC version since the studio originally had a PC-oriented background. This was especially important for the PC release since this version needed to feel like its own game. This version of Bioshock was released alongside the Xbox version on August 21st, 2007. Not long after Bioshock's release, the PC version of the game was accused of sporting a rootkit, you know, a way for third parties to gain access to one's computer, basically a backdoor. The accusation was sparked through a misunderstanding about Secure ROM's registry setting being used for the Bioshock PC download. Spreading like a wildfire, the public support of the game negatively flipped almost overnight. And despite SecureRom's real purpose being used to prevent copyright infringement and, you know, obviously theft of the game, SecureRom was removed from the PC version of Bioshock 10 months after the release to ease the public's mind. It's, it's a compromise, you know, that I think had to be made. You know, it's kind of like, all right, we've made the sales. We need to keep making the sales. It sucks. We have to remove this, but it eases their mind that it's not, you know, Norton <laughs> pinging that right. this is a backdoor. It's actually just part of how this software is written. And it's, you know, unfortunately written very similar to how some other virus programs or backdoor programs or rootkits are built. 
This was right around the time where I think we were having peak controversies with, you know, websites like uh, the Pirate Bay. Yeah, Pirate Bay, LimeWire, all that stuff. Pirate that was Bay, like exactly. Torrenting. So all these things were getting shut down. And so it was a very sensitive topic at the time. Publishers were doing whatever they could to make sure that their games weren't being stolen. But obviously, if there are backdoors being put into the games as a result, that's not really the answer either. So definitely a compromise, I agree, that needed to happen. And they got rid of it, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was pulled. And so PC players were quick to speculate about a PS3 version of Bioshock being released after finding code in the game linking the two. But Levine would quickly shut down any of these rumors since Bioshock was released as an Xbox 360 exclusive. However, senior designer Joe McDonough did believe that the more copies Bioshock sold, the better chance it could perform on other platforms. So on October 2nd, 2008, a Bioshock demo was released on the PlayStation 3, with the full game being released 15 days later on October 17th. So the overall budget for Bioshock, starting at its conception in 2001 through its release in 2007, was estimated over $25 million. Granted, in today's standards, that's kind of a drop in the bucket for a AAA game. <laughs> right. But back then, I mean, that's, that's some fat stack spent on this. Yeah, for sure. So, Alex... Got a little oh, bit, oh, yes, of, little bit of extra for you here. A little bit of a additional trivia. Oh, some some tidbits. A little, a little, some uh, giblets, if you will. Ah, I see, I see, I see. Just a few giblets. <laughs> Did you know the films The Manchurian Candidate, Fight Club, 1984, and Lolita were all studied to help create Bioshock's atmosphere? I could see it. I could see it. Definitely 1984. I could definitely see that one for sure. Fight Club also, mm -hmm. maybe with a little bit of spoilers, the, you know, the, the backhandedness, the surprise, the turn, the shock factor, yep. all that stuff. Ken Levine was also inspired by the ideas of Big Daddies and Little Sisters after watching the movie Ants. This one, <laughs> of, of all movies, very surprising. Yep. There is a bug found within the game that displays the message, exclamation, exclamation, bug this. If you can read this, Paul Helquist did not do his job, love Klein. <laughs> the process to find this message is tedious, but was created as a joke by lead programmer Chris Klein, and it's known that during development, Klein and Paul Helquist did not get along very well with each other. So. so, yeah, so you typically have that lead programmer, lead designer, you know, kind of going back and forth. I want super beautiful trees. Well, hey, those beautiful trees need to be programmed, and, you know, just the whole back and forth, making it beautiful, <laughs> making it functional. Such a good time. The chain tattoos on Jack's wrist are never addressed within the game and have never been addressed during any interview. I found that one really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously a stylistic choice. You don't just make those. And granted, kind of in uh, Infinite, Bioshock Infinite, you get an idea of like breaking free of the cage, kind of. So it could be kind of attributed to that later down in the lore. But yeah, nothing as far as the OG. If I had to speculate, it has something to do with a particular quote that we will see from Mr. Ryan later on in the story. And I mm -hmm, will bring mm -hmm. that up when we get to that. Levine's favorite interview story about Bioshock is when a journalist said that he would have decided to harvest the little sisters instead of saving them. 
After the journalist's girlfriend found out, the journalist had to sleep on the couch for two days. <laughs> oh, what a what a world. I would have harvested the little sisters yet, buddy. You're sleeping on the couch. <laughs> what the heck is wrong? You're, you, you? you are a child murderer. The big daddies and little sisters were the most controversial objects of the game within the studio, being the number one requested cut feature in the studio during development. Think of how different this game would have been without the big daddies and the little sisters. Mm-hmm. And, and we're going to talk about that, too, coming up, because the big dogs, the, the, the pocketbooks, they were like, oh, this is a little bit too much. I don't think we should have this. And so luckily, you know, they, they did stick with their guns on this one and said, no, 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 we'll compromise on some things, but this has to stay. So most of you probably don't know this. I didn't really know this until we started researching more into it. There was a mobile recreation port of Bioshock. Bioshock would make its way to the mobile platform not once, not twice, but three times under the guidance of IG Fun, Studio Tridev, and 2K China. Hiroshi Oberoi, game director for IG Fun and Studio Tridev's parent company, India Games, has stated that India Games once designed a game design document for a Bioshock mobile game. After sending it over to 2K Games for approval, India Games was promptly told to throw the game design document out and to just copy what Irrational Games did for Bioshock's other platforms. India Games was not given any additional advice on approaching the project from Irrational or 2K, only to play Bioshock and not change any of the level designs. India Games wanted to back out, but because they had already acquired the license for the game, it was too late. However, this encounter was not the first time India Games had dealt with poor treatment from a larger company. Previous licenses with The Office, Bruce Lee, and Garfield IPs, of, you know, of course Garfield's in there, had also resulted in the licensures not wanting to work very closely with India Games. So hearsay of what happens with it, but sometimes when you do farm it out, I can understand being like, just, just do what we did, but do it differently, but the same. <laughs> Those IPs are all over the map, doing all, The mm-hmm. Office stuff, Bruce Lee, Garfield, I mean... Generally, you would expect a studio to have at least some semblance of a specialization, right? But the office, Bruce Lee, exactly. You're farming it out. Not everything's going to go smoothly. And, and possibly, here's the thing, possibly a crossover with the office, Bruce Lee, and Garfield confirmed. I think we have discovered something here, the, uh, a show and game no one wanted and no one asked for. <laughs> I am here for the Office Pretzel Day Bruce Lee Garfield episode. Let's do it. Revitalize Let's it. Let's do it. IG Fun would eventually be tasked with creating a 2D version of Bioshock for mobile gameplay. Not only did this mean changing the iconic art style to make it work for their version of the game, it also meant cutting down the overall story due to size restrictions. IG Fun kept in as many aspects of the gameplay as possible, including most of the audio diaries and extra radio messages the player could receive during important parts of the game. The 3D mobile version of the game created by Studio Tridev also experienced some of the same difficulties as the 2D port. Tridev and IG Fun both had to lower the mature content of the game to make it more accessible to a wider audience. This meant reducing the gore and most of the explicit language, but the player could still harvest Little Sisters since it was such an important part of the original game's popularity. Even though the process was only estimated to take three to six months, the development for the 3D version alone extended that timeline to almost two years. When the projects finished, the 2D game was reduced to three chapters, and the 3D version down to two chapters. 
The first chapter for the 2D version was released on January 5th, 2010, with a 3D version following on February 9th through the Verizon store. Overall, the games were only successful in Europe, barely allowing the studio to break even. Unfortunately, the second chapter of the 3D version, as well as the second and third chapters of the 2D version, would never be publicly released. The development for both games ended up costing nearly half a million dollars to develop. So, $25 million for the OG, you know, half a million for over here. And it's interesting to see, like, the idea for the ports. And honestly, those, those early 10s, those early 2010s, that was when people were like, let's start just doing stuff for mobile as well. Let's just put everything on there. And when you farm it out to you know, foreign studios for this and trying to get them to do it, obviously to save budget and get it done faster, it doesn't work. Yeah, it was definitely a very ambitious project for them. I it just, you know, reading this, talking about this, it was set up to fail, in my opinion. It was never going to succeed. But because mobile gaming was really like, in its its early stages, its infancy, mm-hmm. you could see where they wanted to give it a shot and just see what happened. Several years later, 2K Games would have 2K China port Bioshock to iOS. This game could only run on an iPad Air, iPad 4, iPad Mini 2, iPhone 5S, 5C, and the OG 5, since it needed at least 2 gigabytes of RAM to perform, so all the older ones just couldn't even handle it. 2K China would use the same audio from the PC version of the game as well as the same zoom-in field of vision due to iOS devices having restrictive screen ratios. The iOS version of Bioshock also supported leaderboards with a player profile that highlighted in-game stats. Additionally, the game came with an in-app digital art book based off the OG art from Bioshock. The iOS version of Bioshock released on August 24th, 2014 for $14.99 US, with a 1.6 gigabyte download size. In June of 2015, the mobile game was unexpectedly pulled from the iOS app store, with 2K stating that it would return later. In a bio shocking turn of events, 2K would update the game's app store only two months later, stating that it would no longer work on devices with iOS 8.4 or higher. So you had to have that middle ground device. In January of 2017, 2K officially announced that they were no longer putting any further support into the iOS game or any other mobile version of Bioshock. So it kind of it had its run for a minute and they just kind of like, ooh, it's not worth putting time and effort into this. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of games. I don't know if you've ever looked through your app graveyard of stuff that maybe you downloaded early on into your iPhone life, but there are so many things that I remember downloading that Now all they do is say the developer needs to issue some sort of update for it to work with this system. Mm -hmm. So Bioshock's definitely not alone in that. Yeah, um, if you spent 15 bucks to buy Bioshock on your phone, you're probably bummed. But there's also probably other ways to play this game. Yeah, I mean, so if you're obviously looking for the OG ways to play it, again, though, it is fun. I would love to figure out. I mean, we are getting it. We're getting xCloud and some other stuff. So, you know, that's probably... Might be a reality. Oh, back to back to the phone. <laughs> Who knows? Sorry, you're gonna have to catch me after I'm done with Viva Pinata, sir. Oh yes. <laughs> Throughout the development of Bioshock, 2K Games would see the potential of the game becoming a blockbuster success. 
Previous titles by Irrational Games sold around 200,000 to 350,000 copies each, but 2K wanted Bioshock to sell upwards of 1 to 2 million copies and knew the game needed strong marketing to push sales. 2K's director of marketing, Tom Bass, would come up with five basic rules of marketing to help skyrocket hype for the game. Number one, build a community. Number two, everything in the marketing strategy should be unique. Number three, never stray away from AAA positioning. An example of this was 2K declining to be featured by magazines or news writers that were deemed too small or unprofessional. Number four, have an open door to fans with the developer and publisher. This meant that anything that was not big enough for a press interview would be released on developer or publisher websites for mass community viewing. And number five, don't screw up. Honestly, a great way. If anyone's listening, get your notepads out, rewind this a little bit. Just go steal those. It's actually pretty good for like anything you want to release to public, whether it's art, a game, music. You kind of apply those in your own way and, and, and have a pretty cool marketing strategy, especially number five. There's definitely a, a reason that Tom Bass was the director of marketing for 2K. I mean, this is a, a very solid plan that, like you said, could be applied to a lot of different things. So we also have, obviously, are some of our demos and some of the ideas that were added to that that were kind of unique and brought Bioshock to it. On August 12th, 2007, Spike TV released a trailer that announced the Xbox Marketplace hosting the Bioshock demo for a limited time. Is that the last time we ever had a commercial for an announcement that a demo was being released? I, I don't even know that I remember this one, so I'm assuming, yeah, that was probably it's the last time. The last time they tried. We also had download tokens. To further bring Bioshock to the gaming community, 2K would create Bioshock themes and profile pictures for players' Xbox accounts. These were available to download on Xbox Live, but were not purchasable. The only way to obtain these cosmetics was through a download code found on the Bioshock website referred to as download tokens. There was also a limited edition cover art contest. Because of the high cost of the game's marketing, 2K decided that Bioshock shouldn't produce a limited edition of the game. The Bioshock community petitioned for one anyway, which led to a cover art design contest being held. Artist Adam Meyer won the art contest, creating the iconic logo for Bioshock that was used in subsequent titles as well. There was also a launch event. 2K held a large launch event for the game at the Felt Nightclub in Boston, Massachusetts. The entire nightclub was covered in Bioshock-themed decorations, and waitresses were dressed as little sisters, giving attendees Appletini-flavored Adam shots. Bring back, hashtag, bring back the cool-ass release parties. For real, give me tigers, give me Bill Gates, just lions, whatever it was, running around, Age of Empires episode. All right, that's our our goal. Post-year of this world being shut down, you and I need to figure out when the game's being launched, like L.A. or Boston or, or New York, whatever, and find one of these sick parties to get into. It's, it needs to happen. And then, honestly, here's the thing. It's just more content for FTF. I mean, absolutely, man. Let's do... I mean... Let's live stream I mean, one of these, you know, these big boy events. Some, some BB events. All right, so let's, let's move over. Uh, spoilers ahead. If you haven't played it, we're going to talk about the campaign. So spoilers ahead. Skip ahead to minute... Probably like 20. Give it 20. But also, just don't listen to this episode. Just stop. Or just already play the game. Anyway, let's jump to the campaign. 
the story begins on the title screen with the main character, Jack, in an airplane over the ocean. But it quickly cuts away to the plane crashing. Jack does survive the crash and makes his way towards a mysterious lighthouse. Inside, there is a bathysphere. So that's like the big kind of opening thing that looks like a giant old school tank that you get into. So it's basically like, it basically balances out the uh, pressure. There are definitely, like, uh, if you've played the Halo series, very similar things on the Halo ring, where you kind of go through the water and you can, you can look mm-hmm. through just in a glass case, basically. Yeah, kind of like that elevator scene. There is a bathysphere metro transport that takes him into the underwater city, Rapture. Quickly, Jack sees that the city is in a state of ruin. He receives a radio transmitter and is guided by the Atlas, who is, for now, just a friendly voice on the other side of the radio. Throughout the city, Jack must fight off splicers, genetically mutated rapture citizens who came into contact with Adam, a chemical substance harvested from sea slugs. Using Adam allows the user to genetically alter their body, which is the cause of madness within this rapture. Continuing forward, Jack collects Adam from Little Sisters after defeating Big Daddies. He finds rapture founder Andrew Ryan in his office and learns that he has been brainwashed and is under the control of anyone who asks him the question, would you kindly? Before a command. Ryan then commands Jack to kill him while he screams, a man chooses, a slave obeys. Effectively committing suicide, but proving to Jack that what he's been told is true. Afterwards, the player learns that Atlas is Ryan's rival, Frank Fontaine, and that Fontaine was actually controlling Jack while posing as Atlas. Fontaine attempts to kill Jack, but he narrowly escapes with the help of some little sisters. And so this is the moment where that quote, a man chooses, a slave obeys, that's what I think the tattoo on Jack's wrist is supposed to symbolize. But that's just my mm-hmm. own personal theory. What do you think? No, I, I think that's good. I think like the, the brainwashing, the, the fight club analysis here as well, you know, tying in some 1984 building up to this, uh, I think it's very interesting. So yeah, that definitely could be exactly what that is and the motif of it, because we get that motif in Bioshock 2 and Infinite as well for some other characters of kind of breaking their bonds, escaping the cage, you know, things like that. So I think that is kind of the motif that carries through. So it's, look at that. It's a hashtag detail. Oh. Just, just general detail right there for you folks. <laughs> hashtag, hashtag general details, no walkthrough. <laughs> Ooh, yes. We'll extend those out. I love it. And the would you kindly quote, if you start this game up, that's the very first thing that Atlas says to you. Would you kindly pick up the radio in the container? It's the very, very first thing that he says to you. Mm-hmm. And so from the beginning of the game, I mean, it, it follows that path where you are being controlled. Safe but not unconscious, Jack wakes up in a sanctuary for little sisters. Dr. Tenenbaum the creator of the Little Sisters is able to stop some of the vocal triggers, including the question, would you kindly? And eventually, Jack is able to track down Fontaine. Knowing there's no way out, Fontaine injects himself with a copious amount of Adam, transforming himself into a towering super being. Despite this, and thanks to the help of the Little Sisters, Jack is able to defeat Fontaine and extract the Adam from his body, killing him once and for all. Now, depending on the player's decisions throughout the game, three different cutscenes are available, each narrated by Dr. Tenenbaum. The first cutscene is a happy ending, which plays only if the player saves all of the little sisters. 
Jack then returns to the surface, adopting five little sisters. It would later show Jack on his deathbed surrounded by the five girls he saved. The other two cutscenes, which are both visually identical, show Jack's aggression towards the little sisters, leading to splicers reaching the surface and attacking the crew of a submarine with nuclear missiles. If the player kills all the little sisters throughout the game, Dr. Tenenbaum's narration is angry. But if the player only kills some little sisters and saves some of the others, her narration comes off as sad. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that you do have a payoff. You know, you already had the moral choice in the game to do it, but then the payoff at the end is kind of like, I think the worst part is the sadness. Like, either saving them is great or killing them all is like, it's angry, but like, you could have saved them, you know? <laughs> what are you going right. to do? No one wants to finish a game and meet sadness at the end of it. No, 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 not at all. And I think it's a great, it's a great ending. It was a very interesting story of the game. You know, the, the Fight Club twist of kind of like, it was actually me controlling you all along, posing as this, posing as this happening, but this didn't happen, but this was actually me. You know, pretty interesting. I definitely, definitely do like it. And let's break, let's break the gameplay down a bit. Let's talk about what's in it, what kind of made Bioshock different, and how does it function? Bioshock, as we know, is an FPS with RPGs customization and crafting elements. Players progress through the various sections of the game's settings, Rapture, in a Metroidvania, or kind of, you go one way, it changes, you backtrack a bunch, and the environment changes around you, you know, akin to survival horror games. Bioshock expands beyond traditional FPS games, providing the player with choices on how to complete objectives. Stealth is viable, as enemies have vision ranges, blind spots, and awareness. The player can hack safes, vending machines, automated security, and other mechanical or electronic devices. All ranged weapons can be loaded with up to three different kinds of ammo that provide an advantage over some enemies, while becoming a disadvantage when faced with others. So these ammo types come in many forms, specifically anti-personnel, armor-piercing, electric, incendiary, and trap. The research camera allows the player to study the city's inhabitants to learn and exploit their abilities and weaknesses yielding damage bonuses and other exclusive rewards. So you can do that with uh, the machinery and the splicers and stuff. Sometimes it gives you monetary rewards for doing it. Or like you see like, ooh, they have a health drop on them if I kill them. And it, it, it boosts it up and it gives you reason to like plan out your... That's what I would do. I wasn't really a running gun. I was like a plan out my session, see where the big baddies are, see where the turrets are, and plan it that way. I would never plan, just run through, inject <laughs> myself with some Adam, let's go. <laughs> balls to the wall oh you have to additionally certain machines allow players to combine various items and components found around rapture to craft custom ammunition traps hacking devices and even some gene tonics hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost 
and the FDA. Conventional weapons are collected and upgraded throughout the game in addition to unconventional genetic weapons and upgrades. Plasmids are active offensive and defensive tools, while gene tonics function as passive bonuses to combat capabilities, stealth, movement, and interactions with machines. Genetic upgrades are grouped under three types, physical tonics, engineering tonics, and combat tonics. The player at all times will need to use stealth to slip by security devices and enemies, and can also hack into security devices to turn automated defenses to their side. Health and Eve, so the parallel to Adam there, can be replenished with first aid kits and Eve hypos, of which the player can carry a limited quantity. Alternative methods of replenishment are the use of health stations and consumable items scattered around Rapture. The main currencies used in the game are Adam and Rapture dollars. Adam is used to purchase genetic upgrades from the Gatherer's Gardens, while Rapture dollars are used for purchasing items from vending machines, bribing them for benefits, and paying for the automated services. Upon dying, the player will respawn at the nearest Vita Chamber at no cost. Bioshock functions are similar to System Shock 2, such as plasmid-like psi abilities, hacking, and action gunplay. The games even share their themes of science taken to the extreme, unleashing evil upon an isolated world and an atmosphere of suspense and horror. So yeah, so it's, as we had said, a spiritual successor to the System Shock series, so definitely taking some of those ideas and methods that were in there, applying them differently to, you know, this whole different kind of archaic crazy world and making its own underwater of course but making its own so let's talk about dlc some delicious looking chicken although creative director ken levine showed interest in expanding the narrative experience of bioshock there would be no narrative dlc planned for the game many of the ideas for the story that the studio had for dlc moved on into the sequels but we did have a couple We had the Plasmid Pack. 2K Games released the Plasmid Pack DLC on December 4th, 2007, featuring new plasmids, achievements, and an option allowing the player to disable Vita Chamber Resurrection, so you can make this kind of a hardcore mode. We also have the Challenge Rooms. All Challenge Rooms test either the player's problem-solving or combat skills. These Challenge Rooms were initially PS3 exclusives for Bioshock and were released in 2008. Challenge Rooms would eventually make their way into the Bioshock The Collection series in 2016 for any of the platforms. In addition to that, there was some cut material. Atlas originally had a southern accent. Around January 2007, the character was recast due to testers responding negatively to his voice. Comparing it to Colonel Sanders, speaking of that delicious-looking chicken. (laughs) See some delicious-looking chicken. Atlas's dialogue was also rewritten and recorded about five months before the game shipped. It's crazy. Little Sisters were originally slugs called Gatherers. Irrational Games wanted to get the players more emotionally attached to the characters in the game, so they ended up changing the slugs to little girls. Other concepts for the Little Sisters included frog-looking things with funnels attached to their butts, chipmunks, crabs, monkeys, dogs in wheelchairs, and goblins. It took the studio a long time to go from slugs to little girls, obviously even hiring outside concept artists due to writer's or creator's block. 
What a what a ride. <laughs> Those uh <laughs> frog looking funnel butts. I don't know, man. I, I probably would have been pretty emotionally attached to those. Either that or, you know, in today's era, dogs in wheelchairs, I think I think no one would have killed oh those. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? Just a little dog, like little wiener dogs running around with like half half legs, half... Yeah. No way. No oh, way you was, harvest you know that dog. I was think- you monsters. <laughs> I was thinking of them in... Hu- I was thinking of them in human wheelchairs. <laughs> and oh. Someone had to push them around. <laughs> oh, no. oh my god! Okay, that well, makes so much more sense. I don't actually know. It might have been that, but it might have been. <laughs> Who knows? The dogs trying to wheel themselves around. Oh, what a what a day! <laughs> so there was originally no option to save the little sisters, but it was added to present a moral dilemma for the player. Some 2K board members were furious at the idea of punishing players for doing the right thing. Others were upset over the idea of not being able to outright shoot the Little Sisters before their big daddy was killed, which resulted in the Little Sisters almost being cut from the game. Tension would rise within the studio between the two sides when it came to the idea of killing the girls, so it was settled that they would be invulnerable until the player killed the big daddy. So, you know, you couldn't be... It's it's that chaotic neutral. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to be too, you know, you don't want to save them all, but if you want to kill them, you got to wait a little bit. Yeah, sorry, I really want to kill this child right now. Can I do it? <laughs> Pretty much. The little sisters originally were not going to be accompanied by big daddies, but after the hunting the big daddy demo of the game, Irrational would see that defeating a big daddy was key to the player's growth within the game. And it makes sense because you saw it around for a while and it seemed like this just giant defensible Goliath that you wouldn't be able to defeat. So like that gives you that like leap forward, like, okay, I am powerful now. I can do this. In addition to those things, there was also uh, little brothers content that was cut as well. Not a lot of details on that, but there were going to be girls and boys. Big daddies were originally in wheelchairs. So you had some See, big daddy wheelchair wheelchairs. guys along with their little wheelchair dogs. We just wheeling around <laughs> rapture. You had the slow pro big daddy. This Big Daddy was slow and had a projectile. Slow, pro. You get it? You're with me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that projectile was on his shoulder. There were spider babies. I don't know what that means, but I am imagining that little monster from Toy Story that lived under Sid's Ooh. bed. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's terrible. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. If you don't, Google that. Savants, these were boss-type enemies that were heads in jars that controlled different areas of the city. That actually would have been really cool. Mm -hmm. Aggressors, before Splicers, the aggressors acted as the main antagonist in the game. These were people who mutated their bodies to better use themselves as weapons. Exploding cats that replaced grenades were cut. I don't know about you, I wouldn't have wanted to throw a bunch of meatballs around. (laughs) I'm I'm good on that. Plasmids would eventually physically alter the character's appearance after you use them so frequently. Kind of glad it didn't. I kind of like to see my character as is instead of having like a gross mutated Jack. Although it would have been, I think, interesting to have that be sort of the trade-off. Like, yeah, to give you a reason to say, hey, maybe I don't. Like, maybe it makes you slower. Maybe it's like there's a risk that um, you can't control yourself at times or yeah. something like that. I don't know. That'd actually be pretty cool. Splicers could kill little sisters. Navbots were robots that would have guided the player if they ever became lost. There was also a multiplayer, multiple mini games. There was a zoo. 
which would have been awesome. There was parasitic healing. There was a speed booster and teleportation. So kind of glad some of that got cut. I think it would have been a little too sci-fi for some of it. I'm, I'm glad it's like, it's like the right amount where it's realistic enough, but it still pushes that boundary into sci-fi and not real life. It's definitely one of those, um, like the zoo, for instance. Mm-hmm. I think that you've driven home the point that this is a city that has been heavily manipulated and isolated and things are crazy here. Like, I don't need to see mutant zoo creatures or yeah. anything like that to understand what has happened in this environment. Oh, yeah, it definitely makes sense. So let's talk about, we've had this in a lot of sections now, and they're coming back. The Films of Games. In 2008, it was announced that a Bioshock film was in the works. Through Universal Studios, the film was to be directed by Gore Verbinski and written by John Logan, two members of the film industry that worked together within the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise and also Sweeney Todd. At one point, Prison Break's Wentworth Miller teased his involvement within the movie. Strauss Zelnick, a chairman of Take-Two Interactive's video game holding company, made it clear that the Bioshock movie would need to be made without a producer to ensure the film's completion, so they just wanted to roll with it. This was mostly because the game's unique underwater theme and attractive story made the project appear as a, quote, vein of gold, so they just needed to, like, not have a production company on it, just go. However, only eight weeks before the filming of the movie was scheduled to begin, the project fell flat. Verbinski ultimately boiled the failure down to the price tag and the R-rated content. Production companies did not want to take the risk on a film with a $200 million budget that was also rated R. While Verbinski could have made the Bioshock movie PG-13, he did not believe that a lower rating would be rightfully faithful to Bioshock and what's going on in the game. And I agree. I agree with that as well. I think that is the biggest barrier to making video game franchises successful other than fitting in just a massive amount of content in such a small period. So even though the movie hasn't been made yet, I definitely support the decision. And luckily, we did see the success of Deadpool being the first kind of major R-rated nerd stuff that performs so well. Uh, Mm -hmm. Also, Logan, you know, seeing those come out I think Logan's we'll so good. Oh, it's so good. And I hope that opens the floodgates for a lot of this stuff. I mean, we are seeing it. We're seeing the Halo show, Uncharted. We're seeing these that are going to get a little more adult in their nature, and rightly so. I mean, to showcase what they're trying to portray. Bioshock creative director Ken Levine has since stated the reason he shut down the project was because of the DC Comics film Watchmen underperforming in 2009. While the 2K studio could have reduced the budget, Verbinski did not like the sound of a lower-budget film, and so Levine saw it best to pull the plug. In 2013, during an AMA on Reddit, Levine stated that he was considering writing a screenplay for a possible Bioshock movie. Courtney Draper, a voice actress in Bioshock Infinite, had expressed interest in playing a character in the movie and stated during the AMA, it's something I've been talking to Ken about too, because I'm excited for it. I'd be really excited to see that come to life on the big screen. Shortly after this, Sony would acquire the web domains to Bioshock-Movie.com, Bioshock-Movie.net, and Bio-Shock.net. However, nothing new has been heard on the subject since the purchases. 
I'm going to be honest with the technology and what we have rolling today. I'm open for this. Like, even though, you know, I'm, I'm a medium level Bioshock fan. I'll say that I'm a medium level. I'd love this. I would absolutely watch this. I want to see cool movies from video games exist, but they, they just, as I've said in the past, they, they just make me nervous. I do think this one has a lot of potential just as a period piece. I really mm-hmm. enjoy period piece films. Yeah, to tie in earlier, you know, as I had said, like them kind of taking this property and it being somewhat realistic, it's like can make its way into the movie realm without a lot of CGI, I guess I would say. Like you still want to have the implements of it, but it doesn't have to be like a full weird CGI movie. It can still have a lot of like real life stuff and costuming and use the CGI to help around it. So that's my hope if they ever made a movie like this. If I had to, I think, pick my ideal art style for that film, it would be sort of in the vein of Kick-Ass a little bit, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where you know it's cartoony, and you know it's a little bit goofy, and like the Big Daddy shows up, and maybe it's like a Scott Pilgrim-esque thing as well. That would be my ideal thing. I don't know about you, but I feel like... If it ever did kind of get into that corny realm, that would be a good way to still make it work. Either that or take it more on the horror realm. Oh, yeah. And make it make the splicer super messed up. The big daddy, like pretty scary. Like, I think you could do that without having to show everything all the time. It'd be interesting. We'll see. It could Uh, it could either be a great horror film or it could be like that Hulk movie from mm -hmm. like the mid 2000s that were just flashes of green for like three hours. I must say I must say no to that, please. (laughs) (laughs) So let's jump over to the music and sound design. The Bioshock original soundtrack was composed by Gary Scheiman, who was able to land the gig through friend and Bioshock sound designer Emily Ridgway. The development team initially wanted Scheinman to focus on reflecting the artwork and physical world of Rapture in the music. However, Scheinman found himself moved at the thought of Rapture being a once paradise that had since fallen into darkness. Scheinman described his inspiration for writing during an interview with Audioxide.com, saying, quote, It was tragic to me. Andrew Ryan's uber-individualistic vision is another ideal corrupted and warped out of recognition. Fleeing fascism, communism, and theocracy, Rapture was simply free to create its own nightmare. So I like that description of it. Like it, it made a utopia, but in that utopian society, it just started to crumble. And it did a great job, I think, of realizing, capturing fears of uh, America from that time period. Mm-hmm. And just to show, hey, what if things had gone in the other direction? What if all those fears had been realized? We thought we had found the perfect escape, and in reality, it totally crumbled. So I I agree. Fantastic description. Absolutely. So Levine allowed Scheiman to experiment with the music, allowing his initial musical concepts to be less than ideal sounding for a game soundtrack in the mid-2000s. However, Ridgway and Scheiman wanted to try and reflect the game's crumbling world through grand classical orchestration, incorporating popular jazz music from the 1930s through the 60s, and using dissonant avant-garde experimental music from the mid-20th century as inspiration. Orchestral composers such as Shostakovich, Prokofiev, John Cage, Ligeti, Pandarecki, and Bartok were used as the basis for most of the orchestral music in the game. Some of the composers were chosen not only for their music's distinct sound, but also because of their life story. 
Shostakovich and Prokofiev were both Soviet Russians that lived through the chaos of their country, crumbling during the first half of the 20th century, while Bartok lived through the entire collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. These composers' music reflected the weird, experimental, dark, and chaotic nature of the crumbling world around them, something that was almost identically happening within Rapture. Ridgway would use her own personal record collection of Django Reinhardt, Bing Crosby, and Noel Coward's music as the basis for the jazz sound. During an interview with GameTrailers.com, Ridgway explained, The songs themselves, there's a really interesting juxtaposition of a happy, quirky, musical razzle-dazzle number, and then they'd be singing about how the world is ending. It was supposed to mirror optimism and decay at the same time, those two things sort of coexisting with each other. Some tracks used in the game were public domain at the time, which allowed the audio team to record through analog recorders and mix the music in a way to make it sound like it was coming straight from vinyl. They used several different microphones and vintage recording devices to truly give the music an old-timey sound. Voiceovers were added to many of these machines in post-production, with Levine even lending his voice for the Circus of Values machines found in the game. In a technique called musique concrète, this musique concrète was mixed with ambience and atmospheric backgrounds to create uniquely disturbing sounds. For the orchestral side of the soundtrack, Shyman's music was recorded live by the LA Philharmonic, with Shyman even purposely leaving in some mistakes made during recording sessions to further bring out the flawed aspect of the game. Heck yeah, Shyman! That's one of my favorite things in music. I was so excited when I found this out. Mm-hmm. People who over-process music and want everything to be perfectly aligned and perfectly in time, I think are missing just the life of music sometimes. And I'm going way off track here, but uh, his flawed logic fits perfectly in Bioshock. Oh, and yeah. I think that it is a great decision for not only this game, but all pieces of music. Absolutely. So the Bioshock official soundtrack, aka the sad times for Alex we're learning about, would be released in several <laughs> parts, starting with the orchestral soundtrack on August 24th, 2007. This version contained 12 tracks for a total length of 21 minutes and 47 seconds, with several tracks being available for free download on Shyman's website following the game's release. The second version, The Sounds of Rapture, was released in Germany on the same day as the orchestral soundtrack but contains game lines and speeches included within the game. This version contains 23 tracks for a total of 23 minutes and 4 seconds. The last version to be released was I Am Rapture, Rapture Is Me, included as a vinyl record with the release of Bioshock 2 Special Edition on February 9th, 2010, containing 24 orchestral tracks with a total length of 38 minutes and 8 seconds. And uh, hashtag I do not own that. Hashtag, we will get a game that I own. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the release versions. We have the standard version for the 360, the PS3, and PC. But the PlayStation version would come with a survival mode and DLC. It would also ship with updated options, one of which is turning off the Vita chambers, as we had said. We have the Mac OS X version, which was released through Feral Interactive on October 22nd, 2009. Also known as the definitive version. No, I'm just kidding. As some might say, Derek might, others not. (laughs) (laughs) You have the limited edition. The cover art was designed by Cult of Rapture member Adam Meyer and included a three-track EP 
containing three mi- remixes of popular tracks from the game by Moby and Oscar the Punk. A small Big Daddy statue, an SBD, as we call it in the industry. <laughs> and a making Which of... industry are we talking about? Oh, oh, the industry. Oh, the industry. Uh, the industry. And a making of DVD was also part <laughs> of the release. The Ultimate Rapture Edition. Before the release of Bioshock Infinite, 2K would release a bundle pack of the first and second Bioshock games on January 14th, 2013. We have the Platinum Hits for the 360 and the Greatest Hits for the PS3. And finally, the Bioshock The Collection. The first and second game would get remastered for the Xbox One, PS4, Mac, and PC, along with the original version of Bioshock Infinite. The remasters would come with all DLCs, original commentary from creative director Ken Levine and animation director Sean Robertson, achievement support, challenge rooms, and the level The Museum of Orphaned Concepts. Bioshock creative director Ken Levine never thought that Bioshock was going to be successful. On September 18th, 2018, Levine tweeted, Today is the Jewish Day of Atonement, it seems, so I'm here to apologize for the naked Atlas boss battle at the end of Bioshock. Whether Levine meant to apologize for the lewd part or what he called a terrible and abrupt ending is unknown. It can be said without a doubt that Bioshock's impact in gaming history can't be understated. Following its release, Bioshock would receive the highest ranking possible for an Xbox 360 game. It would also set the record for the quickest demo to reach 1 million downloads. Only a month after the game was available to the public, Bioshock had already sold 1.5 million units for Xbox 360 and PC, raising Take-Two Interactive stock by 10%. This solidified Bioshock's spot as the second highest rated Xbox 360 game and the third highest rated PC game in 2007. As of 2021, it is estimated that the game has sold over 4 million copies. Bioshock would go on to earn a 96 out of 100 on Metacritic, earning universal acclaim status. It would also receive dozens of awards, ranging from Best Design and Best Art Design to Best Sound Design and countless Game of the Year awards. Several years later, PC World named Bioshock as one of the top 20 games that had changed gaming forever. This would be a huge surprise to most of the Irrational team as they never expected the game to reach such acclaim. In 2012, Bioshock was recognized by the Smithsonian Institute's Art of Video Games exhibition. As exciting as this was, Ken Levine did not care for the mainstream recognition. He wanted to hear the praise for the game from the fans rather than an awards ceremony. Bioshock would heavily inspire Peter Molyneux, leading to games such as Fable 2, Capcom's Resident Evil 5, and the narrative structure of Dead Space. Levine himself would state that before Bioshock, quote, these games had never made any money beforehand. Bioshock Easter eggs can also be seen when a Big Daddy appears in an episode of The Simpsons, as well as the iconic Would You Kindly line being referenced in the playtest episode of Black Mirror. Overall, Bioshock's legacy is that of a game that most fans had never experienced before, ranging from its unique aesthetic and innovative gameplay as an FPS to the freedom given to players to discover the world of Rapture. Bioshock is something for any kind of player. After hundreds, if not thousands of changes, the team at Irrational was able to band together and revolutionize the first-person shooter genre, as well as reinventing how to implement narrative stories in video games. Fourteen years later, the game still holds up to many modern standards set for video game development. To this day, the game has not only been used as a source for investigating narrative, idealism, and philosophical implementations in video games, 
but also as something that fans can simply put into their console or PC to travel back in time to enjoy doing away with the idea of gods or kings. It is clear that Bioshock's tremendous impact on gaming history and the world is evident through its successful fan base and awards and possible cool movie that's kick-ass, but not. <laughs> we will see. And so with that, that is our coverage of Bioshock. So Derek, as always, why did we pick it? What do you think? We picked this game because how can we not? I mean, I say that a lot about the games that we talk about, but Bioshock truly was a, a, one of those games that I saw just change the gaming industry. It's had, mm -hmm. again, I say this about all the games we talk about because we want to talk about influential games, but just the impact that it had on not only the first-person shooter genre, but horror genres as well. I, I think that it's really unique in that way. And just a very, very interesting concept. It had so many things, like a great period piece setting, you know, and oh, great, yeah. unique first-person shooter RPG elements. And we've talked about all those things, so I'm not going to get repetitive on them, but... This is going to be a game. This is generally where I'd give a rating to a game. And I, I'm not going to give a rating to a game this episode because this is a game that, honestly, for me, when it came out, was so scary. Mm -hmm. Like, did the horror element so well that I could barely get into it. I really tried. I've tried it multiple times i get scared like i just to do a little bit of research for this i started watching gameplay footage again and it terrifies me and yeah. i feel like it's such an understated underrated part of bioshock that you really feel isolated you really feel alone i mean you crash out of this plane at the beginning of the game and there are people talking about your presence and they obviously know that you're there and you can't see them. And there's sort of this anxious feeling of when this thing stops, when this, when this elevator stops, when I, when I get to the end, there's going to be something waiting for me at yep. the end. And I don't know what to expect. And then when you do finally get to that point, there's a guy there that just, he just, he gets ripped apart by a splicer right in front of you. And in the midst of the splicer trying to break in to your little, like, nice, safe bubble, you're getting this uh, interaction from Atlas. And then to know the plot now and to know what really happens and, and to truly be alone in Rapture, the whole game just scares me. Um, but I will say, like, doing you know, like research on this, talking about this, looking at the gameplay stuff again, this is 100% going to be a game that I play again. And I think that this is going to be the first game that I stream yeah. once I get going with the stream now. I, I think it's, I think it's totally worth it. I, I think, and I think, Hey, listen, this is the first rating. I agree with you, a non rating because it is, it is tough, you know, with, without playing it, but also just like the legacy it leaves. It's tough to have that in there. And you can really see, you know, going back to those spooky, scary elements you're talking about and the jumps, Condemned, Criminal Origins, or Condemned 2, both of those have did that so well. Like kind of some OG Xbox 360 games, they're well worth checking out if you have not and you like 
horror stuff, suspense thriller. They were kind of the predecessors to Amnesia or to any of those other games that are out. Outlast, any of those is kind of where Condemned is their big daddy, some might say, joke of the day. <laughs> uh, so you see that. You see the Resident Evil 4 elements. You see all these other things that are included in it and done so well. Such beautiful architecture in it. Such beautiful artwork. It's, it's a game to play. If you have not played it, there's plenty of different versions to check out. You can totally find the collectors or kind of the compendium version uh, with all three of them on there. Pretty cheap, running 15 to 20 bucks on sales for a lot of that stuff. So it's definitely out there. But if I had to give it a rating, I would give it me not killing any little sisters because I'm a, I'm a good boy. I'm a human and I can't be bad in games, even though I want to be. I think that's a lie. I think I watched you harvest a little sister. Multiply it by Derek's lies <laughs> um, and have that out there. I think that is that, that is, needs to be well-known within the Bioshock universe. Uh, subtract out the vending machines because they, they just... No one likes a vending machine. That's just a, that's just a stated fact. It has nothing they, to do with the game. They just steal. vending machines, they steal. You're right. You're right. It's theft. It's pure theft. Um, and take that all out of Atlas but Atlas in the terms of the guy that holds the world up, not of the game, um, out of Adam Levine. <laughs> and that is my rating. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank I like you very it. much. Thank you. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker with assistance from Evan Barr. The intro and outro music to this episode was written and composed and recorded by Evan Barr. I'll keep it short and sweet. You love them. We just love them this episode. We love them all. Uh, but we want to thank those who also support us monetarily and give us some cool shows that Derek and I have been brainstorming and putting together. So if you haven't, obviously, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash finish the fight. We have some new shows, some new test bed shows brewing over there, as well as merch, some new hot stuff coming soon. Um, check it out over there. And if you haven't already, tune into some of them. We got some post shows. I love it. And let's check out and thank those today. And let's start with Sky the Bear, Tactics, Grant Dillon, Mr. Chalk, Count Fong Feliciano, Alex Harper, Nick Hyman, Tuna0317, Brandon Christian, Richard Scanlon, Mick Chief, Big Papa Semechki, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, William Kroll, Cameron Collier and Mr. Toot. So thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. If you haven't yet, please give us a follow on our Instagram. You can find us on Twitter as well. And join our Discord. It's free to join. Alex and I are hanging out in there all the time. Mm -hmm. We're all having fun. We're posting memes. We're talking games. We'd love to see you there. Absolutely. And as always, you're going to catch Derek soon, but you can catch me right now over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. We're doing some gameplay stuff, some photo stuff, some editing stuff fun things like that and be sure to check out our etsy shop where we're having some new merch coming soon you can catch us on apple Podcasts, spotify or your favorite podcast listening platform if you haven't please leave us a review we love hearing from you guys we appreciate the feedback it helps us out a lot and again that was bioshock what did you think of it have you played it do you live in a bubble under the sea are you perhaps spongebob let us know <laughs> and with that a big daddy under the sea a big daddy under the sea, Larry the Lobster. And with that, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And thank you again for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Yeah.